Welcome to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast brought to you by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. This podcast tackles important pulse topics, including market opportunities for your crop, market access and trade policy developments, innovative agronomic approaches, transportation for Canadian crops, and a whole lot more. My name is Alison Fletcher, and I'm the research project manager with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Today, I am pleased to be chatting with Dr. Chris Willenberg, Associate Professor in the Plant Sciences at the University of Saskatchewan, and Amanda Fedorchuk, a grad student in Chris's program. Today, we are going to discuss Chris's weed program, a five-year research initiative SVG has funded that focuses on examining herbicide options and effects on a number of pulses to better understand impacts on weeds of concern, with the goal of providing more information and recommendations for growers to use on their farm. We have the added bonus today of Amanda here to share some of the details from the research trials that were conducted and outcomes from those trials. Thanks for joining us, you two. Uh, so Chris, I'm going to start with you first. Uh, for the benefit of the listeners, can you just provide a brief description of your weed program, what the broad objectives were, uh, what you wanted to explore, and which pulse crops you've been working with? Sure. Thanks, Allison. So we've been working, as you mentioned, uh, with SPG now in, in this agreement for close to five years, but uh, the program itself has actually been in agreement for, for close to 10 years. And, and I guess in this iteration of the program, uh, really our focus on pulse crops has sort of changed because pulse crops, I think, have really become a cornerstone of crop rotations in Saskatchewan and, and probably right across the northern Great Plains. I think crops like pea, lentil, and chickpea do provide growers with low input, high yielding crops that tend to bring fairly good financial returns for the most part. Now, in our previous research program uh, that was funded by SPG, as a big part of that research program, we had a fair number of, I think, important outcomes for growers in, in terms of our development and use of products like uh, Authority, for example, on pea and chickpea. Um, our work there had assisted in reducing the recrop interval for canola to 12 months uh, after application and lentil of 24 months. Uh, and, and, and I guess in, in large part, um, the first iteration uh, five to 10 years ago, really focused a lot on herbicides, uh, the development and registration of, of new herbicides for pulse crop production. Okay, and, and although herbicides have been developed to control many weed species in pulse crops, and we did further a lot of that work, uh, what we've seen, I think, in, in large part over the past 10 years has been large increases in the levels of herbicide resistance with uh, sustained desire for kind of reducing synthetic inputs in Western Canadian cropping systems, um, both by, by growers and by society in general. And so I think there's sort of a renewed interest in managing weeds without chemicals. Uh, it's become increasingly clear that uh, to more effectively manage herbicide resistant weeds, we have to target the weed seed bank. Growers are often reluctant to do this, uh, but weed management should be considered, I think, in a time frame beyond just a single growing season. And, and many growers out there are doing this already. So kind of to put it all, all together then, the program that we've put together here for the current five years that we're speaking about really builds off those herbicide innovations that, that were brought forward partly by our group in the first iteration of, of our agreement with SPG. And we've moved forward now, I think, um, 
to move growers towards more of a long-term weed management solution that I would say is, is going to take place throughout uh, my career and, and many of the young growers out there as well. Uh, in that sense, what we're trying to do here in this program is combine many different tactics together. So things like biological control, integrated weed management, and we continue obviously to try to expand the herbicide options growers have access to. And that's largely because, well, I do know that resistance is becoming an issue. And I know that society does want us, uh, as growers at least, to become more ecologically sustainable. I really don't think we can do that without economic sustainability on the farm. So we do continue to explore short-term weed control options within the program. And these are things such as novel herbicides or novel uses for existing herbicides that I think offer growers a lot of bang for their buck. Perfect. That sounds good. Um, so you sort of mentioned uh, briefly and then sort of building on what you've introduced there, you have been working uh, with faba beans and examining some of the uh, applications of pre and post herbicides on that crop, uh, sort of getting into more specifics. So uh, would you mind uh, giving us some insight on, on what you were looking for and what you were looking uh, into for that objective? Sure. Um, so faba bean is, is a crop that, that is receiving increased interest, I think, uh, across, especially the northern parts of the prairies. And, and this is the work that uh, my graduate student, Amanda Fedorchuk, began working on a couple of years ago. And she'll uh, fill you in on some of the highlights of this. Uh, but it really stems uh, in large part, again, from the issues with group two resistance. The high level of efficacy that we typically saw with group twos and the frequent use of those herbicides has led to strong selection pressure for the development of resistant weed species. And indeed in Western Canada, we have seen wild mustard and cleavers uh, that have developed group two resistant populations on, on the prairie. So we proposed three studies really examining various integrated management tactics in faba bean and field pea, and, and we'll focus here on the faba bean. Um, but really the objectives and hypothesis being tested here, I think will apply more broadly to most pulse crops and, and, and other crops in general. The overarching goal of this work really uh, was to determine whether combining pre-emergence herbicide use and in-crop cultural techniques could reduce the number of in-crop weeds thereby improving weed management and reducing herbicide selection pressure. And the focus there is on in-crop herbicides because um, for growers, it's important to realize that the majority of your selection pressure that you're putting on that weed population happens in the in-crop uh, timing. And that's because that's when the majority of weeds are present within the growing season. Now, a recent study in soybean in the U.S. did in fact demonstrate that it was possible using pre-emergence herbicides and soybean planting dates to minimize the use of in-crop herbicides and reduce selection pressure. And we kind of surmised that combining multiple tactics would be even more effective. So the first study um, examined really whether faba bean seeding rate could be used as an integrated component of herbicide resistance management. So the need to manage these resistant weeds has received renewed interest, I think, in, in pre-emergence residual herbicides, which have become more commonplace on the prairies. But few studies have actually attempted to establish the effectiveness of weed suppression from additional plants coupled with and compared to 
those pre-emergence residual herbicides. So the trial we established had the following treatment factors, six different seeding rates, um, ranging from 25 to 150 viable seeds per meter squared um, in 25 plant in increments and pre-herbicide options. So we had a glyphosate only and a glyphosate plus pyroxysulfone plus sulfantrazone treatment as well. Uh, and I'll let Amanda fill you in uh, shortly on, on some of the, the results and, and the evolution of that study. The second study was established to determine whether it was possible or even eliminate post-emergence applications of pulse crops with the effective use of residual herbicides, coupled with various levels of management integration. And that really is sort of a, a novel concept to, to think that we could potentially eliminate a post-emergence herbicide application. And I thought, why not test it in, in a pulse crop that's poorly competitive? Because if we can do it there, we can probably do it in a lot of other pulse crops as well. Um, so what we looked at here, um, basically were, were treatments that consisted of several different residual herbicides. So again, glyphosate only, which would provide no residual weed control, glyphosate plus heat, or safrafenicil, which would provide a short residual, glyphosate uh, plus pyroxysulfone plus heat again, which would provide a longer residual. And then we had three levels of what we call integration, which are agronomic treatments. So a low integration, for example, would include a farmer or a grower using a, a recommended seeding rate, a later seeding date, and wide row spacing with no mechanical weed control. We then move to a medium type integration, which would include the recommended seeding rate, but in this case, an earlier seeding date on narrower row spacing with no mechanical weed control, and then a very high integration level. Okay, something that you might see associated more with, with organic type systems where we have a doubled seeding rate, very early seeding, um, so late April, early May, very narrow row spacing and mechanical weed control, which in this case would consist of rotary hoeing. And, and maybe that's a good place uh, for Amanda to jump in on sort of what, what the results she's seen in her research were. Sure. Yeah, Amanda, so if you could uh, just give us sort of a brief um, overview, you know, what you observed in the field trials uh, that you conducted with faba beans and, and sort of what some of the results that you've uh, seen so far. Sure, I can do that. As Chris said, in our first study, we looked at mostly just how that seeding rate and that pre-emergent herbicide would work at reducing those weeds that would be exposed to that post-emergent herbicide. And we were actually very uh, happy that you increase that seeding rate, even just a little bit over the recommended seeding rate. And you were able to definitely reduce those numbers that were being exposed to that post-emergent herbicide application. So then therefore you're reducing your selection pressure for that herbicide resistant weeds popping up in the future. But in our second study, I mean, I'm from a farm. I grew up knowing the importance of herbicides and I know how well they work, but I've also seen how, how bad it can get when that herbicide doesn't work. So in all honesty, I was a little bit leery coming into that second project of, well, what we're never going to be able to get rid of that post-emergent herbicide application. But I was actually shocked to see that, like 
Chris was mentioning with the, when you up that seeding rate and you plant earlier in the spring and with that rotary hoe, you can actually get extremely high levels of weed control, even without spraying it in crop. And it was shocking for me to see that actually. And I know a rotary hoe is something that's not really that common in a farmer's shed right now. But I think the exciting part for me was that once we lose these post-emergent herbicides, whether it be to legislation or herbicide resistant weeds, we don't really just have to throw in the towel. We can still grow these pulse crops. We just have to look elsewhere at this weed control. And I was very excited to see that when you combine these practices, you're seeing almost 100% weed control in some cases. So yeah, I was very excited to see the results from these studies. Good. And, and maybe we'll just back up a little bit. Um, you know, we were talking about, you know, the, the control and the level of control that you're seeing with some of these uh, treatments that you applied to these field trials, but just maybe for the, the benefit of the listeners and, and highlighting uh, which of the weeds or, or what weeds are most problematic in faba beans. And, and I guess, yeah, Chris or Amanda, you can, both of you can tackle that one. Well, I, I think it, it sort of depends where you are, but but I, I think across the board, typically what fava bean growers are going to be battling with, uh, certainly if you've got canola in your rotation, probably you'll see some volunteer canola coming through there. Wild mustard is another one, particularly sort of Saskatoon, Saskatoon South. Uh, cleavers, obviously, in the fava bean region would, would be problematic. Lambs quarters, again, is, is, is again more of a field level issue, but certainly kosher. And, and this year, uh, kosher takes the cake on, on the calls that I'm getting, that's for sure. Again, maybe more of a southern issue, but I think that uh, the problems with kosher have certainly extended north this year. And, and there are spots in the northwest, again, where we see things like hemp nettle become a fairly big problem in, in any pulse crop system. So, Amanda, am I missing any? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think kosher definitely is the biggest problem in the north right now. <laughs> yes, and so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, your research uh, that you conducted and the project that you conducted, uh, looking into the tolerance of faba beans to pre-herbicides. Uh, you know what, what basically what you were hoping to gain uh, through that objective, and, and what observations were made uh, in those field trials. Sure. Well, here, uh, I guess some of the studies we were looking at with herbicides and faba beans was sort of to focus on um, some of the research that featured pre and post. And, and I guess as a bit of context, um, during the first agreement with SPG, we did some sort of exploratory work um, that really showed stacking um, or, or what's now known, I guess, that came out of that work is, as herbicide layering. Once we layer these pre and post herbicides together, we could markedly improve the control of difficult to manage weeds. And this approach basically improves management, reduces weed populations. And also if we are able to incorporate multiple modes of action, it'll reduce selection pressure as well. Obviously not to the point of, of eliminating herbicides, but I don't think we're at a point yet where we, where we can even approach that idea. Um, in pulse crop weed control. So we think this approach has some merit based on what we saw initially, uh, especially as it pertains to things like volunteer canola and cleavers control in faba bean, because faba bean will typically be grown on those northern soils, which are often high in pH, that sort of limits the efficacy of commonly used herbicides like uh, sulfantrazone or authority and safofenacil or heat. 
So really this trial um, assessed the importance of a pre plus post system. Uh, and pre plus post refers to the timing of, of the herbicide relative to when you seed the crop. So a pre would occur before and a post would occur in crop. Um, and, and we're specifically targeting sort of that cleavers volunteer canola. So the treatments we had here were either an early or late um, post-emergence herbicide, a pre-emergence herbicide only, a pre and a post where that post is applied either early or late in the growing season and an unsprayed check. And, and in terms of the, the, the herbicides we used, again, we used heat or sulfofenicil as, as those pre-emergence treatments. Um, and we had post-emergence treatments. Um, I guess we, sorry, we also had EDGE too, that's right, ethylflurlin or EDGE. And the two post-emergence treatments we used were either uh, Odyssey or, or Vipe. And early post treatments tended to be applied at the two-nose stage where we could. And those late post-emergence treatments, um, we were targeting that six-node stage. Now, when we look at the results so far on, on these particular studies, um, it really showed that the effect of, of a pre-herbicide and a post-herbicide application on things like fababine biomass was definitely significant. Um, and, and that sort of lines up with what we've seen in previous years. On, on this research. So what we tended to find was that sequential applications, and in this case, we did substitute AIM for, for the edge. So AIM, which is carfentrazone, um, as our pre-emergence product, uh, combined with Viper at the six node stage, heat along with Viper at the two node or that early stage, and, and a Valterra or Odyssey, and Valterra was also added to this trial as a pre-emergence herbicide, produced the highest fababine biomass. Um, so, so there's a number of products then that, that really gave us what we considered to be acceptable fababine biomass. None of the treatments um, with only a pre-herbicide applications produced significantly more biomass than the untreated check. And there were no significant differences either between Odyssey and Viper herbicides. So when you look at just the post herbicides alone, there was really no differences in fababine biomass ahead of that. None of the differences in biomass though translated into yield differences, okay? So even though we saw these, these nice differences in fababine biomass, it didn't make any difference with regard to crop yield. Now in terms of weed control, um, both heat and, and Valterra, so our pre-emergence herbicides, they were more consistent in reducing weed biomass than was AIM, our carfentrazone. And we, we sort of expect that. Um, AIM is, is, again, a contact product. So its efficacy on weeds tends to be a little bit more associated with um, some of the prevailing environmental conditions when you do apply that product. We didn't see any major differences between Odyssey and Viper again, or those post-emergence herbicides, regardless of timing. Um, really, probably the, the best weed control we achieved or the lowest weed biomass that we saw was when heat was applied pre, followed by Odyssey at the two-node stage, which again is, is uh, again preferable because both of these products are currently used by growers. Um, so to summarize, I think it's important, growers can probably take home from this, that sequential applications of a pre and post herbicide did show an increase in crop biomass production, although this increase did not translate into an increase in crop yield, 
it clearly reduced uh, above ground weed biomass, which translates into better weed control. And again, that heat in Valterra uh, tended to be more consistent in reducing above ground biomass than, than was aim. Now with regards to the pre-only herbicides, as in the previous agreement, we, we will sort of continue to, to screen as, as we, we promised we would. We b- believe that uh, we stand to make the greatest progress in, in sort of screening new crops for use in fababine. So under this initiative, these trials were conducted to assess the tolerance of fababine to potential new herbicides. And when we do that, um, we typically do it at one and two X rates because that's what PMRE is looking for. So in this particular study, what we had included um, was a hand-weeded control, pyroxysulfone, residuous, sulfantrazone, or authority, and then a couple tank mixes of these particular products, as well as flumioxazin and flumioxazin plus pyroxysulfone. And again, I'll, I'll sort of use the, the chemical names, but um, so far what we've seen is, is that carfentrazone pyroxysulfone combination, that's focused for the growers listening out there, it did cause greater than 10% injury um, for fababine, which is problematic. And that was when it was applied at either 160 or 320 gram active, either as a standalone or tank mixed with flumioxazin at a pre-plant or pre-emergence. Um, only focus when applied pre-plant to 320 grams was found to significantly reduce fababine seed yield compared to the hand-weeded check. And it did so by about anywhere from 10 to 13%. So nonetheless, significant and certainly consequential to a grower. Um, but again, we're just sort of starting into some of this work and, and we definitely need more, more years of data to confirm these results. And again, uh, some of these products for, for the growers that are listening are, are not registered, and that's why we're doing the research. So again, any of the results that we speak to, um, consult the guide and look at what's registered before you're actually taking this into the field. Yes, and that's a, a good point to make. And and just before we wrap up here, and I know you've sort of touched on a lot of the findings that you've had, but you know, any any last uh, words on on recommendations or outcomes that are, that are particularly important for growers that uh, you'd want to let them know about here today? Sure, I, I can speculate on a few things. It's it's a bit early, as I mentioned previously. We're still in need of a bit more data to justify some of these recommendations, and and also again. Can't stress it enough. Uh, many of the products we work on are not registered. That's the point of doing the research. Um, so don't try this at home <laughs> until it is registered. Nevertheless, I think it's clear that, that where growers have weed control in mind, combinations of pre and post products will provide the best weed control, even if full weed control is not achieved with that pre-emergence product, the suppression that it provides is often enough to get control when an effective pre-emergence product is combined with an effective post-emergence product in crop. Because really what that pre-emergence product is doing is it's suppressing or holding back that weed and and the competition from from the crop as well as um, the effects and usually some residual effect of that pre-emergence product. That's enough that coupled with that in-crop, when you come in with that in-crop herbicide, that really nails it and you get good control in many cases 
of that weed. But note that I said effective products. It's imperative for growers to ensure they're using multiple modes of action and that any tank mix partner for a specific target weed has good action on that weed. So if you're throwing a tank mix partner in post that has no impact on your weed of interest, clearly you're not gonna get that benefit of that herbicide layering. Now in saying that, I think the combination of heat pre-emergence and odyssey post-emergence in our trials did provide effective weed control on faba bean with minimal impacts on crop growth and yield. And both of these products are registered. And so this is something that growers, if they're not using it already, um, and some probably are, certainly we've, we've had good, good uh, results with these two products. And I think similar results were achieved when we did use AIM as a pre-emergence and Odyssey with a post-emergence, but that Odyssey applied at the two node stage, okay? But this combination overall, even though it was effective, um, it was probably somewhat less effective than when Odyssey was applied at this six node stage. So I think, you know, in, in situations maybe where you don't want to use or can't use heat, AIM as a pre-emergence product, although slightly less effective in our research is still definitely a product worth considering and an odyssey and a post-emergence um, role really does a good job in fallow beans as well. Great. Thank you. So that's all the time we have for today's podcast, but I wanted to say thank you to Chris and to Amanda for joining us today. Uh, you shared a lot of great information from your research trials and from the overall program. And I'm sure growers and agronomists alike will be interested to, to read and hear more on your outcomes as the read program wraps up. For more information on the research that was discussed during today's podcast, there is a new research summary that has been written and posted to saspulse.com under the production resources tab. Thanks to everyone for tuning in to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the Google Play Store to automatically get new episodes.